0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Silver Streams, the weekly podcast from the AFI Silver Theatre and Cultural Center's programming team. I'm Todd Hitchcock, AFI Silver's Director of Programming.
1: I'm Abby Alga, Associate Film Programmer. And I'm Ben Delgado,
2: the Assistant Film Programmer.
0: And today we're going to discuss the latest offerings in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, as well as recommending some other titles to view at home.
1: And new this week, we have Croc of Gold, a few rounds with Shane McGowan, a new documentary about Irish musician, poet, and general troublemaker, Shane McGowan. We have 76 Days, a documentary about the early days of the COVID-19 outbreak in Wuhan, China. We have Minor Premise, a sci-fi thriller which recently had its US premiere at the Spooky Movie International Horror Film Festival right here with us. And lastly, we have The Changing Times of Ike White, a documentary about elusive music prodigy Ike White, who recorded his debut album, Inside Prison, serving a life sentence for murder in the 1970s.
0: This week, we're going to preview all of the new films premiering this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room, recap the films that opened in previous weeks that are currently available to view there, and close with our programmers picks section. Uh, where we discuss other ideas for what to watch at home. This is episode 30 of Silver Streams. We began this podcast back in April, shortly after closing the doors to the AFI Silver Theater and launching our virtual cinema program. And we'd like to thank everyone out there who has been listening to the podcast over this time. Uh, The numbers on the listenership continue to climb and that's wonderful to see. especially some of our most recent episodes, which have uh, really taken it to another level, uh, such as episode 28, where we discussed our recently concluded Noir City International series and interviewed Eddie Muller of TCM's Noir Alley and the Film Noir Foundation. And that episode will very soon become our most popular episode ever. Also episode 18, where we discussed Edgar Wright's Scott Pilgrim versus the world, on the occasion of its 10th anniversary. So thank you all for listening to all of these episodes of Silver Streams. And also a big thank you to everyone out there who has been screening films at home from our virtual screening room. By screening these films at home, you are supporting AFI Silver. We receive a portion of the proceeds for every virtual cinema transaction that you make. So by screening at home this way, you are supporting our theater during our extended closure. Thank you all for supporting the silver during this challenging time. And just a reminder, you can find all of the titles that we are currently offering to screen at home on our website at afi.com slash silver. And when you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. If you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo
1: you can find the podcast each Friday posted on our website at afi.com slash silver in our Friday e-blast and on our social media channels. And we're in all the places where you usually find your podcasts.
2: And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you're a new listener, definitely subscribe. If you checked out the episodes uh, because of Eddie's interview or any one of our more recent episodes and you're you're new to the show, Uh, please be sure to subscribe. That way you get the podcast as soon as we put it up and it'll pop up in your app of choice. Um, And also, please rate and review the podcast. Um, That really helps uh, the algorithms. Uh, I know I say it every week, but it does help. And of course, tell your friends, tell your family, anyone who you think may be interested in learning more about the films we're playing and other suggestions that we have for you to check out.
1: And we had a pretty busy week and long weekend in, in the virtual screening room with uh, the last weekend for Noir City International and Taiwanese Cinema Rediscovered. Um, so a big, big thank you to everyone who watched something um, over these these past few days. Um, our most popular title uh, over the weekend was the new documentary Zapper by Alex Winter. Yes, that Alex Winter, the Bill and Ted Alex Winter. Uh, And this is a new, in-depth, comprehensive look at the life of composer, rock god, activist, and all-round creative genius, Frank Zappa. So this is great for all the the Zappa heads out there. Um, Of course, they don't need to be convinced, uh, but if you're a new newcomer to the world of Frank Zappa, then this is the, the perfect primer. There are tons of interviews with bandmates, family, friends, collaborators. And of course, there is a lot of Zappa telling his own story alongside great archival footage and performances. And since we have two other excellent music docs opening uh, this week about Ike White and Shane McGowan, I think it's going to be a perfect triple feature for anyone out there interested in doing that. And then if you're more into the biographical aspects of a film like like Zappa than the music aspects, uh, then we also have two other portraits, biographical portraits of great people in the virtual screening room that are continuing to do well. And there's a Soros about billionaire activist, George Soros, and Oliver Sacks, his own life about the late neurologist and author Oliver Sacks.
2: And another one of our new films to the virtual screening room that's been popular these past few days is the documentary Born to Be. Uh, The film follows the work of Dr. Jess Ting at the groundbreaking Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, where transgender and gender non-binary people have access to quality gender-affirming care for really the first time ever. Uh, The film takes a really intimate look at how one doctor's work impacts the lives of his patients, as well as his own journey from a renowned plastic surgeon to a pioneering gender affirming specialist that led to his own transformation. A very touching documentary and happy to see people are checking this one out. And another film that's doing pretty well in a virtual screening room is another one of our new ones, Three Summers. This is a brilliant comedy about gross class disparity and the infinite creativity of those who can never take anything for granted, Uh, starring Brazilian acting legend Regina Casa as a caretaker for luxury condominiums, and of course takes place over the course of three summers, as the title would imply.
0: And then rounding out the titles that are doing particularly well in the virtual screening room at the moment, Radium Girls. Uh, This is Lydia Dean Pilcher and Ginny Moeller's film about a real-life landmark worker safety scandal that took place at the United States Radium Corporation. I know, what could possibly go wrong? Back in the 1920s in Newark, New Jersey, and the film stars Joey King and Abby Quinn. Also, Martin Eden, and this one's shaping up to be one of our biggest hits ever uh, in the era of virtual cinema. Uh, Martin Eden is directed by Italy's Pietro Marcello, and it's an adaptation of the 1909 social critique novel by Jack London. And the film stars Luca Marinelli, who some of you have probably seen in Netflix's The Old Guard. Uh, Also, the film is uh, an alum of last year's European Union Film Showcase, uh, which, of course, we just kicked off the new edition of that earlier this week. And then also just to round out sort of our top 10 in the virtual screening room right now, uh, a few more documentaries, Uh, City Hall, the latest documentary from the great Frederick Wiseman, Harry Chapin, When in Doubt, Do Something, and the film Collective, which is a great investigative journalism doc uncovering state corruption in Romania. It's also Romania's Oscar selection for best
1: international film. And then staying on the topic of international film and European film, um, as Todd mentioned, uh, if you're listening to this on on Friday when it drops, uh, the AFI European Union Film Showcase has just opened. We opened on December 2nd. This is the festival's 33rd year, and it's the first time in that 33rd year history, no surprise, that the festival has been presented entirely online. Um, Because yes, we're all virtual this year. uh, And that doesn't mean you shouldn't expect the festival to be as great as it is every year, bringing the best in, in European cinema to the DC area. And actually, for the first time in this online version to the whole of the US, because more than half of the films in the lineup, nearly 30 of them, including our opening night film, how to Be a Good Wife are available nationwide. So it's it's very exciting for, for this year's festival. Um, we've got 48 films, 25 uh, European Union member states are represented. We've got award winners, box office hits, New works by upcoming talents and new works by established talents. Uh, we've got 12 U.S. and North American premieres and nine uh, Academy Award submissions for Best International Feature. This year's opening selection is Martin Provost's big-hearted comedy, How to Be a Good Wife, starring Juliette Binoche as this buttoned-up finishing school headmistress caught up in the revolutionary spirit of 1968. Uh, in France. Uh, I talked a bit about that one last week, if you're interested in going back to that one. And then the closing selection, which is scheduled to coincide with the 250th anniversary of Ludwig van Beethoven's birth, is German director Nikki Stein's sweeping Beethoven biopic, Louis van Beethoven. Uh, We've got Lots of films from some high profile, well-known European auteur filmmakers. Uh, We've got Thomas Vinterberg's dark comedy, Another Round, starring Danish superstar Mads Mikkelsen. Of course, just announced that he will be replacing Johnny Depp in the Fantastic Beasts franchise. We've got the Czech Republic's Oscar submission, Charlatan from Polish director Agnieszka Holland. You might remember her from last year's showcase and uh, Mr. Jones, which sold out in our big theater. We've got uh, Francois Ozon's 1980s set, Gay Romance, Summer of 85. We've got uh, German director Christian Petzold's postmodern fairy tale, Undine. And we've got acclaimed stage director, Phila Deloitte's powerful Sundance debuted film herself. it would be a good year for the festival any year, but we're really happy we've been able to pull together something as close to what our in-person lineup would have been as, as is possible. And we also have a number of director Q&As, including one with, with herself, with director Philadelphia Lloyd, uh, who, by the way, also directed 2008's Mamma Mia and 2011's The Iron Lady. So I'm sure she'll have all sorts of great stories to share. And we also have an audience award this year, so you can vote on a film after you watch it. And please, be sure to do that the winner will be announced on Sunday December 20th and I know we all have our own personal favorites here but we are really excited to hear what you all choose
2: and keeping it international for our virtual series we have a series on Wonkar Y, uh, with his lush and sensual visuals and pitch perfect soundtracks and soulful romanticism the Hong Kong auteur has established himself as one of the defining auteurs of contemporary cinema. And we're proud to partner with Janus Films to present a virtual retrospective that includes brand new 4K restorations of seven of his most dazzling works, including Chungking Express, As Tears Go By, Days of Being Wild, Fallen Angels, Happy Together, A Director's Cut of The Hand, now expanded into a feature at length from the original short version, and on the occasion of its 20th anniversary, a newly restored version of In the Mood for Love. All the films in the series are going to be available on December 11th. Uh, they're in, available now for individual pre-order, or you can also pre-order a pass to watch all films. Uh, be sure to check out the lineup. Uh, I went through it all Kind of quickly, I'm not gonna to go too in depth on the film titles if you don't know Wong Kar Wai, but suffice to say, as I mentioned, he is a master filmmaker and we're really happy that we have these brand new restorations in the screening room and are able to show them to you now. Um, I hope everyone checks this out. I know I'm really excited for it personally. Um, I've seen some of the bigger hits from Wong Kar Wai, but I certainly haven't seen The Hand and films like that. So I'm looking forward to checking some stuff out myself.
0: Yeah, the Wong car Wai series, which is something that we had been planning to do in 2020 anyway, um, uh, you know, going back really almost a year uh, since it first went on our planning schedule. Um, but with the events being what they are, it will, uh, It the good news is it's still going to happen. It's just going to be part of our virtual cinema offerings, but uh, depending on on your age and and when you were introduced to Wonka, why this may be your first opportunity to see many of these titles, uh, or it may be that you've seen all of these titles or most of these titles. It was just a long time ago, um, but our hope is, of course, that people are going to take uh, the opportunity to uh, either introduce themselves or or revisit all of these excellent titles, and then um, beyond the 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 big canonical titles that are included here the the interesting one that uh even people who are well versed in wang Wai cinema may not have seen is this director's cut of the hand so this is split out from the omnibus eros that it originally uh came to us in and it's uh an expanded version of that so it's now a 50 something minute sort of featurette length and stars the great chinese actress gong Li. so even if you're pretty well versed in your wang Wai, you may not yet have seen this uh expanded director's cut of the hand and then i just want to wrap up uh uh, mention that we recently concluded two other uh virtual cinema series uh this earlier this week so taiwanese cinema rediscovered and noir city international Uh, great results for both series tremendously good results for noir city international uh, so a big thank you to everyone out there who who watched films from both of these series. In the case of Taiwanese Cinema Rediscovered, we'd like to thank our program partners at Techrow, um, and in the case of Noir City International, uh, our program partner, the Film Noir Foundation, Eddie Mahler and the Film Noir Foundation. It was uh, a great experience to uh, co-present and and uh, allow people to see these films in the virtual space. And uh just really had a, a a lot of fun with it, as I, as I know many of you out there did as well. Uh, a lot of lot of great feedback from people who were enjoying films in in both of these series. Uh, so again, thank you, everyone out there for watching. And then this is kind of a reminder that um, the third film in our Chantal Ackerman Restoration's mini retrospective down there or La bas opened this week. So now all three films uh, uh, down there along with South and From the East uh, are now available in that series uh, for you to view. Uh, So that's what's going on with uh, our various series and festivals. Uh, And here's what's going on with the new films opening this week in the virtual screening room.
2: And first up this week in the virtual screening room, we have Croc of Gold, A Few Rounds with Shane McGowan. Winner of the Special Jury Prize at the 2020 San Sebastian International Film Festival and an official selection of the Doc NYC Film Festival. This documentary is a cinematic exploration of the Shane McGowan story. that details the Pogues front man's explosive and endlessly eventful existence. From his salad days growing up in Ireland to time spent on the mean streets of London and embracing the punk scene to forming the Pogues. We discover McGowan's passions, humor, and deep knowledge of music, history, spirituality, and popular culture. This film is a vision of the world through the eyes of the great punk poet and an intimate cast of close friends and family members, all channeled through seasoned rock doc and music video director Julian Temple's inimitable and eternally vibrant lens, featuring unseen archival footage from the band and McGowan's family, as well as animation from legendary illustrator, Ralph Steadman, who's best known for his collaborations with Hunter S. Thompson. This rollicking love letter spotlights the iconic front man in up to his 60th birthday celebration, where singers, movie stars, and rock and rollers gather to celebrate the man and his legacy. With such an eventful life and an influential career, the film was able to give a fairly comprehensive overview of McGowan Incorporating a myriad of styles that reflect the rocker's own surprisingly well rounded interests and exciting personal journey. The doc looks at his life chronologically, putting into context the famine, the troubles, and the overall influence of the Catholic Church on Ireland, as well as McGowan's own journey with Catholicism and how it was intertwined with his journey with alcohol. And of course, how all these things influenced his songwriting and the messages behind the music. He's mostly an open book here with plenty of stories to tell, but fair warning, you might need to make use of the subtitles when he's recounting them.
1: Well, I'm definitely not someone who knows a lot about Shane McGowan and his music, but I have to say I did find this film really interesting in the way it contextualizes McGowan's life and his work and gives us these interesting glimpses into various eras and milieu from from rural Ireland, where he's growing up in in the sixties and then London in the seventies and and eighties, where he moved with his, his family as a teenager. And as you mentioned, there's great archival footage and interviews. And it's also interesting to hear McGowan now talking about, about his life and his his influences and his regrets, maybe. I mean, he he has some, but not, not as many as you might imagine. Um, and then that next to interviews with him from, from his youth. So, yeah, very complex personality and a complex portrait to go with it.
2: Definitely. And I, I learned a lot myself, um, knowing pretty much nothing about Shane McGowan and just a passing knowledge of some of the Pogue's, uh, bigger hits. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's, it's comprehensive and, and the interviews are great, I th- especially like the interviews with his parents. Um, his dad is a great character in the film, um, as well as his sister and, and just his family is, has a lot to say about him. Um, including some other people, but I think for the most part I really was uh, enchanted with what his family had to say.
1: Yeah, they seem like a very tight-knit family, and his dad's great. He has kind of like a Father Christmas beard, and he's, I think, drinking a whiskey throughout his interviews, as far as I can tell, which is appropriate, obviously. (laughs) Very appropriate. (laughs) So
2: that's crock of Gold, a few rounds with Shane McGowan from our friends at Magnolia Pictures.
0: The next film that we have debuting in the virtual screening room this week is the documentary 76 Days from filmmakers Hao Wu, Wei Shi Chen, and Anonymous. And this documentary chronicles the first two and a half months of the coronavirus outbreak in the hospitals of Wuhan, China. And it takes a very fly on the wall, you are there approach. We see the doctors and nurses in full head to toe PPE gowns, masks, and gloves. So the camera crew in the ICU along with them must have been similarly equipped. And we see the healthcare professionals coping with an overwhelming situation. Crowds of people at the door desperate to be admitted and a team of nurses just barely keeping order and shutting the door on the agitated crowd. We see people overcome with grief, unable to see or say goodbye to their loved ones and doctors and nurses attending to patients in dire condition and also doing their best to explain to uncomprehending, sometimes older and only semi-literate patients the necessary cautions regarding their condition and the do's and don'ts during their hospital stay. The doctors and nurses' work looks grueling under any circumstances, but simply overwhelming in the face of a pandemic wave. I think anyone considering going into medicine should probably take a look at this film and decide if this hugely important but immensely challenging profession is for them. And I also think all students of the documentary form will find much to appreciate in this film's approach to its material. It's very show-don't-tell and pretty much nonstop unbelievable that the filmmakers are embedded in this hospital hot zone during a pandemic. When the history of this moment comes into better focus, I think 76 Days will have an important place, as will Alex Gibney's documentary Totally Under Control, which we showed recently. Uh, That film has a completely different approach to this one. Uh, The Gibney film is more of a macro assessment of policy and messaging over nearly half a year's time, whereas 76 Days is Frontline's reportage. Despite their different approaches, both films have... Equal value in their own rights. This is the kind of film where I simply have to be honest, it's a very sad movie to watch, but there's something very valuable in seeing these images with your own eyes. I think you'll come away with a better understanding of the gravity of the situation. And I'll just close by saying to everyone please stay safe out there, limit your travel and interactions as best you can, and do wear a mask. And also consider taking a look at this excellent documentary, 76 Days. And 76 Days is coming to us from MTV Films and M. Tuckman Media.
1: So, next up in the virtual screening room is Minor Premise, which is coming to us from Utopia Distribution. And Minor Premise had its world premiere just a few months ago at the Fantasia International Film Festival, which happened all online this year. The festival usually takes place in Montreal, in Canada, and it's one of the world's leading genre festivals. And then the film had its U.S. premiere as part of the Spooky Movie International Horror Film Festival, which we presented online back in October. So we are all really happy to be bringing it back to the virtual screening room and for more people to have a chance to see it. So Minor Premise is the feature debut of filmmaker Eric Schultz, who also co-wrote the script with Justin Moretto and Thomas Torrey. And it's based on his own short film, Premise, which was also made this year. So he's, he's a busy man. Schultz is known for his work as a producer, on films like James White and the recent Independent Spirit Award winner, Premature. And with Minor Premise, I think we are seeing the arrival of a bright new directing talent. So I will say right off the bat that Minor Premise has a pretty intricate and complicated plot. So I'm not gonna go into all of the ins and outs of it here. One, because I don't wanna accidentally spoil something. And two, because I don't actually know if I can do it justice with my limited scientific vocabulary because this is literally brain science that that we're talking about but suffice to say that this is a complex well executed and very entertaining sci-fi thriller it follows a reclusive neuroscientist named Ethan played by Satya Sridharan who is obsessively attempting to surpass his late scientist father's legacy by continuing his experimental work in capturing and manipulating human memory and emotion by using this crazy homemade looking machine that he keeps in a makeshift lab in his basement. So from the start, you can tell it's all gonna go really well. And like any good mad scientist, Ethan has of course been using himself as a guinea pig in his own experiments. And after one particularly risky alcohol fueled test, he accidentally succeeds in splitting his consciousness into 10 fragments, each of which gets to control Ethan for six minutes in every hour while knowing nothing about what the other nine fragments are up to. So, yeah, that's why I'm not going further into the plot. It's uh it's complicated. Think Shane Carew's Primer or Christopher Nolan's Memento. And the film's also kind of gritty and dark. There's lots to unpick and wrap your head around and go on Reddit to discuss, probably. Uh, and that's what makes it interesting and enjoyable. The film also stars Dana Ashbrook and his niece Patton Ashbrook in supporting roles, and they're both excellent. Uh, Dana Ashbrook is probably best known as Bobby from Twin Peaks, and he does bring some great Lynch energy to the film. And Patton Ashbrook, who plays Ethan's ex-girlfriend and And current colleague, the one who has to get him out of the mess he's got himself into, is mainly known for her TV work, including as a series regular on House of Cards. And she's really great here, too, as this calm, level-headed scientist who perhaps maybe has uh, her own agenda in helping Ethan out of this mess. And then besides these two supporting performances it's Satya Shudaran in the lead role as Ethan who really makes this film work as well as it does I mean he literally has to play essentially 10 different roles and you know this isn't a big budget sci-fi film the sets and the special effects are minimal and director Eric Schultz really relied on shridharan's performance to make it all work and to make it believable. Uh, he's been in a number of shorts and in TV and in features and smaller roles, but this is his first lead role and he really pulls it off. And I think we'll be seeing quite a bit more of him in the future. So, yeah, if you're looking for a gritty, intense sci-fi thriller that looks at how sometimes even the best scientific intentions can go astray and which looks at fundamental questions about identity and memory, then this is the perfect sci-fi for you. It definitely has a Christopher Nolan-esque vibe to it and I'm sure it will serve as a great calling card for Eric Schultz in setting up his next project and then probably in 10 years he'll be directing a, a Star Wars film or, or a Marvel Universe film.
2: So you had me at James White. I love that movie and I can imagine what a sci-fi version of someone who's involved in that production, what that sensibility would look like um, and you know all the other details that you managed to put in there even if you don't have all of the specifics of the the science um which I don't blame you um it all sounds like something I would uh you know love to see so I'm looking forward to catching up with this one
1: yeah I definitely think you'll enjoy it and I don't you know I don't want to deter anyone you know you don't have to be a brain scientist to you know understand the plot and and get into this film uh, it probably helps honestly but um yeah it's just really well executed and also kind of dark and gritty and you know I think uh I think, I think you'd
2: like it, Ben. Well, I'll watch it and report back.
1: All right. So that's Minor Premise coming to us from Utopia Distribution.
2: And the last film in our virtual screening room is another music documentary. Earlier, I talked about a well-known and well-renowned musician profiled in *Crock of Gold. But this documentary, The Change in Times of Ike White, is one of those films like Searching for Sugar Man that heralds a mostly forgotten and largely undiscovered talent. Serving a life sentence for murder in the early 1970s, music prodigy Ike White had plenty of time to perfect his musical talent, but no hope of putting it to use for the outside world. White's skills were exceptional enough though, that his story captured the media's attention. From this notoriety, he was able to record an album inside the prison with big time producer, Jerry Goldstein. Superstar Stevie Wonder lobbied successfully for White's release from prison, With an acclaimed album under his belt and support from Wonder and others in the industry, White was now poised for stardom. But instead, he went off the grid for more than 40 years. Daniel Vernon's mesmerizing new documentary is unpredictable and moving, echoing the strange journey of Ike White. As you would expect, there are plenty of twists and turns in this probing documentary, and Ike White is a great storyteller who meticulously documented his life after prison, with well over a hundred videotapes filled with footage and boxes of photographs, diaries, etc., So there's a wealth of material that fill out the story of this brilliant musician. White's personality is as great as his talent. So even when he's faded from the brief spotlight that he had, it's a joy to be around this charismatic character. And the people in his life have plenty of stories to go along with his. With every new interviewee, there seems to be yet another layer uncovered in Ike White's story. I won't spoil all the surprises and twists and turns that I've mentioned. That's, that's really half the fun of the film, the wild ride that you're taking is, is all these twists that reveal themselves. Uh, but I will say that the music is great and there's plenty of it throughout the documentary. Uh, there's this amazing soul R&B music with powerful vocals from Ike White and funk to spare. And of course, some virtuosity guitar playing from, from the musical prodigy himself for good measure. It's really too bad that his music isn't more well-known, but hopefully this film will remedy that.
1: Okay, well, I definitely need to watch this, Ben, because I really like stories like this. I mean, it's a completely crazy story. Uh, And I also feel like I want to listen to this album that he made now, now you described it. Um, and apparently the filmmaker, um, said that, uh, recently one of Ike White's friends watched the film and said to him, oh, well, why didn't you include the part of his life where he was a porn star in Germany? And the filmmaker was like, I didn't even know about that part. You know, there are layers to this man that a lot of stuff happened to this man in his life. (laughs) And, uh, this documentary sounds like a great way in and maybe there'll be a a sequel. (laughs)
2: There's certainly enough material for it. That's a bonus factoid I didn't know about. And it, it fits in line with his character. He um, He's very much a ladies' man. And that is covered in the film uh, pretty extensively.
1: Oh, and is the album on Spotify?
2: It is. Um, the album's on Spotify. And I was listening to it earlier today, uh, just in the background. Uh, really fun music. And there's, I think, a 2020 remastered version even there. So you can check that one out.
1: All right. I've got my homework. Thank you.
2: So that's the change in times of Hike White from our friends at Kino Lorber.
1: Okay, so
0: that's what's new this week in AFI Silver's virtual screening room. In addition to discussing the films we have available as virtual cinema, each week we also like to discuss some other ideas for films that you can view at home. This being our programmers picks section. And this week we're going to discuss a film celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. It was a big screen adaptation of a well-known adventure series that originated as a newspaper comic strip and followed the intergalactic adventures of a good-hearted, boyish young man and his friends. No, it's not Star Wars. It's really not Star Wars. But as you're about to hear, 1980s big screen adaptation of Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon does in fact have many, many connections to George Lucas's Star Wars saga. And while Flash Gordon was not a hit in the U.S., as well as being critically panned overall, it was relatively successful in various European markets. Oh, and on the plus side of the ledger, it also has this amazing theme song by Queen.
1: So after watching the trailer for Flash Gordon or, you know, even watching the film itself, I think one of the first questions or a couple of questions that spring to mind for most people are why was this film made and how on planet Mongo did this get made? This film is crazy. It's a campy space opera with a soundtrack by rock gods queen created by and starring some of the leading lights of 20th century European art house cinema. And it's honestly like nothing seen before or since it is such a weird, amazingly incongruous film. It's cynical and earnest. It's pretty risque and touchingly innocent, it takes itself very seriously and not that seriously at all. It counts among its biggest fans, directors Edgar Wright and Taika Waititi, comic book writer Alex Ross, and also Her Majesty Elizabeth II, Queen of England, more on that later. It's impeccably crafted and somehow it still looks kind of cheap. It's a Saturday morning action movie for young kids, but it's also pretty R-rated in its blatant innuendo and phallic imagery, sexual overtones, you can't even call them undertones. And yes, frequent references to, to drug use. There are literally space roofies and space Viagra in this film. I mean, literally, how did this get made? What happened to me? I
2: don't know, but it was
1: pretty sensational. Remove the earth, woman. Prepare her for our pleasure. So anyway, seriously, how did this come to be? Well, the property on which the film is based, uh, as Todd mentioned, is the comic strip created by Alex Raymond and first published in 1934 as an answer to the already established and very popular character of Buck Rogers. Uh, The comic was adapted by Universal into three serial films, very long films, uh, in the 1930s, starring Olympic swimmer turned actor Buster Crabbe, who, by the way, also played Buck Rogers for Universal. And then it was turned into a live-action TV series in the 50s and an animated series in the the late 70s. So by 1980, Flash Gordon was well-known, well-traversed intellectual property, And it was a property that Italian mega producer Dino De Laurentiis had been eyeing for his own adaptation since the 1960s. And so honestly, the answer to how did this get made uh, in many ways is Dino De Laurentiis. So De Laurentiis, as many of you probably know, got his start as a key producer uh, during the Italian Neorealist period in post-World War II Italy, working with filmmakers like Roberto Rossellini, Federico Fellini, Vittorio De Sica, Lucchino Visconti and Giuseppe De Santis. Um, among many other films, uh, he produced Fellini's La Strada, which we just had in the virtual screening room, and Knights of Cabiria. He went on to produce a bunch of more genre-oriented films in the 60s, including some biblical epics, spaghetti westerns, war movies, and, key for the development of Flash Gordon, to comic adaptations, Mario Bava's Danger Diabolique and Roger Vadim's Barbarella, both miraculously in 1968. De Laurentiis relocated to Hollywood in the 70s, where he produced a string of acclaimed films, including Sidney Lumet's Serpico in 1973, Don Siegel's The Shootist in 1976. And let's not forget 1977's Jaws ripoff, Orca, which we've talked about on a previous podcast because It has a score by Ennio Morricone. So this is where De Laurentiis was at the time, a well-established, highly experienced, successful producer who had already worked with some of the biggest names in European and American art house cinema. And it's at this point, at this very high point in his career, at which he decides, yep, my next move is going to be to make Flash Gordon. But actually, as I mentioned, De Laurentiis had been considering an adaptation of this since the 60s, but it just never come together. Uh, in the 70s, he'd actually acquired the rights from King Features, who had published the original comic strip. And he began to look for ways to get it made. His first pick for director was Frederico Fellini, who optioned the rights from De Laurentiis, but never got around to making the film. And then when the rights reverted to De Laurentiis, a young Flash Gordon fan and up-and-coming filmmaker called George Lucas approached him about making the film. But De Laurentiis refused to sell him the rights and undeterred, Lucas decided to invent his own characters and create his own original space opera, which was of course, Star Wars. De Laurentiis then hired British director Nicholas Roeg, uh, who at this point had just made Don't Look Now and The Man Who Fell to Earth. But after about a year of development, which saw Roeg and screenwriter Michael Allen, who was the screenwriter for Enter the Dragon, by the way, going in a direction that De Laurentiis really didn't like, uh, he dropped dropped him from the project. He tried to hire Sergio Leone, who said no, because he didn't think the script was faithful enough to the original comic strip. And he eventually settled on British director Mike Hodges, who was known at the time for Get Carter from 1971 uh, and Pulp 1972, both starring Michael Caine. And with Mike Hodges as screenwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr., who was best known for his work on the campy 60s Batman TV series. Um, So he had his director and his screenwriter sorted and uh, that was the long winding road to getting Flash Gordon actually started. Uh, One that started with De Laurentiis, served as a catalyst for the creation of Star Wars and ended well with the marvel that is Flash Gordon.
2: And speaking of screenwriter Lorenzo Semple Jr., he really has quite a CV. Uh, Listeners may know him as the screenwriter that brought back Sean Connery to the Bond franchise with Never Say Never Again in 1983, or for his 70s crime thriller scripts for films like Three Days of the Condor, The Parallax View, The Drowning Pool, and Papillon. Semple actually started out writing short stories in the 1950s, And by the end of the decade, was a playwright with Broadway productions under his belt. By the 1960s, he had gotten into TV writing and was also toying with writing features. Um, This is where he had his first dalliance with the Bond series, when he was hired without pay by Russian actor-director Gregory Ratov to adapt the novel Casino Royale. And even though this version of the script never made it to the screen, by the mid-1960s, he would really take off after a failed Charlie Chan pilot led him uh, to being offered the Batman TV series. He ended up being credited for writing just 16 of the 120 episodes of the series, but he did create what he called the Bat Bible, which is referenced throughout the the series um, in terms of the lore of Batman and the world that was created for the series. And, and it really shaped the show's sensibility. Um, He also wrote the script for the film version, uh, which came in 1966. And if you know the series, the Batman series or that film, um, then you know the camp sensibilities and the aesthetic um, that was really shaped by Semple. Um, And you'll see the seeds that have been planted here for um, his work on Flash Gordon. So Semple worked with Dino De Laurentiis on Three Days of the Condor, and just one year later, he would work with him again in 1976 on the King Kong remake. Uh, Given this history with Batman and his past relationship with De Laurentiis, it's it's no surprise that he would come in to replace Michael Allen uh, to write the script for Flash Gordon. And as great as this campy script is, Semple himself really thought that the humorous approach to it was a mistake. And when reflecting on the decision which was De Laurentiis' decision to to take that campy, jokey approach to it. He said, at the time, I thought that was a possible way to go. But in hindsight, I realized it was a terrible mistake. We kept fiddling around with the script, trying to decide whether it was going to be funny or realistic. And that was a catastrophic thing to do with so much money involved. Not only did he not like that approach to the script that he thought was kind of inauthentic and going back and forth and wishy-washy, He also felt like the art director slash costume designer, Danilo Donati, which we'll get into a little bit more later on in the episode, was given way too much free reign without having even read his own script. And this really is uh, an example of how many people on this film were essentially working on their own projects at the same time.
0: So just a few notes on the film's ostensible director, Mike Hodges. As Abby already explained, he was uh, not the first choice to be the director on the film, uh, far from it, uh, but he was the person who actually has his name on the film and did oversee the shooting of the film. Uh, Hodges has one of those careers that usually gets written off as a journeyman, um, but at the same time, there's a handful of of true highlights on his filmography. Uh, far and away, number one being uh, the iconic British crime film, Get Carter from 1971, starring of course, Michael Caine. And he and Caine would team up again, right after that, the, the following year for Pulp, a much lesser known film, but one that I highly recommend uh, and, and one that does have real cult value with um, it's a sort of a caper with Michael Caine playing a writer of, of uh, CD paperbacks who's sucked into a strange plot to ghostwrite the memoirs of a fading Hollywood star played by Mickey Rooney. Uh, It also features Lionel Stander and uh, Elizabeth Scott. And then after a a long period, Flash Gordon was his biggest film probably in his whole career, but he had kind of faded into the late 80s and early 90s before having a little bit of a comeback with, uh, again, some crime-related films, Croupier in 1998, which helped establish Clive Owen as a leading man star, and a few years later in 2003, again with Clive Owen in very good neo-noir, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And despite the challenges in in making Flash Gordon uh, and some of the ego clashes along the way, uh, no one seems to have anything bad to say about Mike Hodges on the, on the project.
1: And one thing that strikes me about this film is how, you know, we've just talked about all these highly accomplished and experienced craftspeople with great films under their belts working together on what should have been in theory a great film of epic proportions but instead turned out to be Flash Gordon. I'm not saying it's not a great film it's just different. Um, it just seems like everyone involved as, as good as they were at what they were doing were basically making a different version of this film and one thing I've heard Edgar Wright say a few times is that the main job of a director is to manage the tone of the film and to keep everyone working on it on the same page with respect to what type of film they're making. And clearly this is not what happened with Flash Gordon. Mike Hodges was really a director for hire. He, he didn't really have any interest in making a comic book adaptation, I don't think. And he was kind of, you know, as Todd mentioned, going with the flow, getting on with everyone and just doing his job. And then Lorenzo Semple Jr., as, as Ben mentioned, was kind of torn between leaning into these campy aspects of the original comic and then feeling that maybe humor wasn't the way to go with, with this one. And then De Laurentiis, who was just kind of oscillating between making this something really fun and comical and silly and, and something much more serious and all of this before we talk about the film's cast because in the film's cast lies another crazy mishmash of talents and abilities and motivations and we have to start of course with sam j jones in the lead role as flash quarterback of the new york jets turned intergalactic space hero who are you flash gordon quarterback new york jets well, what can I say? This was both the best and worst casting decision of all time. Um, in some respects of this film was going for the look and feel of the original 30s comic strip, in which, by the way, Flash actually isn't the sharpest tool in the shed. Sam J. Jones was absolutely perfect. He's got this chiseled jaw, uh, general look of this all-American athlete type. He was a former Marine turned semi-professional football player with not really any acting experience at all. The mythology around Sam J. Jones's casting is that Dina De Laurentiis's mother-in-law saw him on TV on an episode of The Dating Game and told De Laurentiis that he would be the perfect Flash, after which they flew him over to the UK to audition and he got the role. And, you know, how much of this is true? I don't know, but it is kind of a perfect origin story. Jones' kind of horribly wooden acting style really does add to the film's bizarre charms. And it's an acting style that was made even more bizarre in the finished film by the fact that Flash's dialogue was actually dubbed over, for the most part, by another actor after Sam J. Jones and Dina De Laurentiis fell out and Jones left the project before the end of the shoot and well before they could record any ADR. And I know Todd and Ben might be of the opinion that Flash is maybe the worst part of the movie, But I actually think he is kind of perfect, um, Sam J. Jones. He has this kind of childish innocence that perfectly balances the more cynical aspects of the film. He's kind of this exaggerated version of a European perception or stereotype of what an archetypal all-American hero would be. He's blonde, he's athletic, football player. He's incredibly earnest. He's endlessly optimistic. He's committed to teamwork and honesty and working hard and doing the right thing. Even if all of that flies in the face of reason and cynical self-interest. Flash,
2: are you crazy? The fire's too heavy. You know we'll never make that opening with nobody at the wheel. Oh, come on, you'll be blown to pieces, Flash. It's suicide. No, a rational transaction. One life for billion. Come on, you bitches
0: you loony bird get out of here they need you on the ground
2: well goodbye flash it's been i know for me too
1: vulcan anyway alternate casting possibilities for flash were arnold schwarzenegger and kurt russell which i think would have resulted in very different films but films i would definitely watch and of course, Laurentius did go on to work with Schwarzenegger just a few years later on Conan the Barbarian and Conan the Destroyer. But I'm still glad that they went with Sam J. Jones. Uh, he didn't have the biggest, greatest career after this project, but he did keep working mainly in TV and direct video action movies so opposite sam j jones as flash we have melody anderson as dale arden the travel agent turned concubine to emperor ming and of course flash's all-american partner in saving the earth and ultimately about a day after they meet his fiance. Flash,
0: flash i love you but we only have 14
2: hours to save the earth
1: and as with sam j jones flash gordon is probably melody anderson's best-known role Uh, But again, she continued to work in film and TV throughout the 80s and early 90s, including in a film I'd never heard of starring Nicolas Cage called The Boy in Blue, in which Cage plays a Canadian competitive rower. So that one's going on my list. And again, Melody gives this kind of sweet, innocent, relatable performance. She's the kind of nice but feisty girl next door and that really works well in contrast to the other female characters in the film and it and it makes it fun also when she breaks type and she grabs a laser gun and she takes off her high heels and she kind of kicks us. She has some she has some Princess Leia vibes. Uh, in Nicholas Rogue's version of the film, Dale was going to be played by, I'm not joking, Debbie Harry, which would have been a very different energy. And again, a film I would have watched. Abby I, I do
0: like Melody Anderson cast as Dale Arden. I I just think she looks the part based on Alex Raymond's original art. Uh, as far as Debbie Harry casting, uh, I wish there were more movies with Debbie Harry. First of all, she did Video Drome around this time and is very memorable in that. But in terms of casting, she would have to be Princess Aura, not not Dale Arden. I think that's the direction I would go. But I think you're and- right. <laughs> At the other end of the spectrum, uh, both in terms of the role and the acting chops, is Max von Zidau as Ming the Merciless. Von Zidao, of course, is the great Swedish actor. Uh, he will always be synonymous with the films of Ingmar Bergman, for whom he was a regular leading man in over a dozen features. But probably his best known film, uh, all time internationally, would have to be William Friedkin's The Exorcist, where he played Father Marin. And for what this role is and what this movie is, Vanzito is very good portraying a villain in the Grand Guignol mold here. But this is probably where we need to mention the problematic casting of the Ming character. Granted, he's an alien from outer space, but conceptually, in appearance and name, Ming is coded as Asian to Western eyes. And very much in the tradition of other pulp Asian supervillains like Sax Roamer's Fu Manchu. So yes, you can point out the problem with yellow face casting here, but I think the problem begins with the freighted stereotyping of the original material.
2: Pathetic Earthlings! Who can save you now?
0: Also among the key cast here is Topol as Dr. Hans Zarkov. And Topol will forever be synonymous with Teva in Fiddler on the Roof, a role he originated on stage in the... London production, and would go on to perform well over 2,000 times around the globe. Uh, But Zarkoff and Flash Gordon is probably his best-known film role.
2: And Timothy Dalton is great here as Prince Baron, who's desperately in love with Ming's daughter, Princess Aura, uh, with his Robin Hood mustache and dashing good looks. He's uh, really a great foe for Flash. Um, this role was before he would take up the mantle of James Bond in the late 80s, but he had already been in a film and television for over a decade at this point, having starred in the 1970 adaptation of Wuthering Heights and a handful of period pieces and mysteries in the years leading up to Flash Gordon. And of course, the Welsh actor is still probably best known for Bond, but he would go on to be in everything from Toy Story to Hot Fuzz and continues to work steadily in film and TV to this day. And although this role here as Prince Baron might not be his most celebrated role, he does get a lot of great lines and fight scenes and a lot of good screen time. And I really appreciated him as Prince Baron. Freeze, the bloody bastards! Freeze. And although he's technically billed as a supporting cast member, anytime he's on screen, and we hear his booming voice, there's no denying that Brian Blessed as the powerful Prince Voltan, ruler of the Winged Birdmen, becomes the star of Flash Gordon. He's chewing every piece of scenery and it's brilliant. Uh, uh,
0: this is Voltan. I read you. Where are you?
2: Flying blind on a rocket cycle. Flying
0: blind on a rocket cycle? Uh, uh, we are in a borea!
2: I'll send you a homing beam. Thanks, Dalton. Hey, for what it's worth, Ming's got Dale, Zarkov, and Baron. I see. My thanks to you. Yeah? What for? Well, for giving a dumb old bird a second chance, over to homing beam. Known for his television roles in the 60s and 70s, including Z-Cars, The Avengers, and I, Claudius, Blessed was a well-established, boisterous on-screen presence and will go on to do many Shakespeare adaptations on stage and screen, including film adaptations of Henry V and Hamlet, both directed by his friend Kenneth Branagh. He also starred in several musicals, including a production of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Cats, where he played both Old Deuteronomy and for Jones. Despite working in so many period pieces and costume dramas and on stage, Blessed himself was a huge fan of the Flash Gordon series. And when he went to meet with Dino De Laurentiis and Mike Hodges for the part of Prince Volton, he saw a painting on the wall that he thought was, was him was a depiction of, uh, of himself. Uh, He thought the two were pulling his leg and that he already had the part. It turns out he was just the spitting image of the character. He looked exactly like Volton. But when he, confessed this in the room. He was kind of nervous about it. And Dino was quick to say, you know, don't worry. We couldn't think of anyone else for this part. And Blessed's response to that was, was perfect. He, he says, if you offer it to anyone else, I'll strangle the bastard. And no, I'm not gonna do a Brian Blessed voice. I can't do it. I don't have it in me, but I'd love to be able to. Um, and you can really tell that Brian Blessed loves this film. Uh, he's giving his all in every scene. And to this day, he's he's very defensive of Flash Gordon. In a recent interview with The Guardian back in August, he said, I'm very critical of people who say it's a camp film. It's not, it's perfection. Kenneth Branagh, Patrick Stewart and Derek Jacoby all agree with me, it's a masterpiece. And I just wanna briefly touch on some of Blessed's achievements outside of acting as a little bonus. I think it's really fun and interesting and, and kind of adds to who you think Brian Blessed is and who you wish he was. He's exactly this kind of Renaissance man that that you picture in your head. Um, So Blessed is an avid boxer. He claims to have sparred with the Dalai Lama. Um, He assisted in the delivery of a baby in London's Richmond Park and reportedly bit through the umbilical cord after it was born. Um, He's attempted to climb Mount Everest three separate times without oxygen. Uh, Didn't make it either time, but he did summit a few other uh, mountains and he's completed over 800 hours of space training. that just kind of scratches the surface of the Brian Blessed Renaissance Man uh, actor and everything else that he does. Uh, If you can't tell, I'm a pretty big fan of of Brian Blessed, especially after looking into him as much as I have. Uh, But of course, I have to wrap up this segment and the best way to do so has to be with a classic line that according to Blessed just makes everyone happy. It's got to be one of the most famous lines in film history.
1: Gordon's alive! Well, I don't really know how to follow that, Ben. You've made it very difficult. Um, but there are lots of other excellent supporting cast members, um, including two Italian stars that made this film a big hit in Dino De Laurentiis' native Italy. Onella Muti as Ming's daughter, Princess Aura, and Mariangela Mulatto as his left-hand woman, General Carla. Um, Onella Muti is absolutely perfect as Ming's very sexually liberated daughter, who basically saves Flash's life so that she can make him her sex slave and then ends up accidentally joining the revolution against her own father. So... Nothing weird going on there. Muti was already known in in Italy at this point, having been in around 25 films there by 1980, mostly comedies and thrillers and, and jally, starting with her debut at age 14 in the 1970 film The Most Beautiful Wife, for which she won Best New Actress at the Italian Golden Goblet Awards that year. And Flash Gordon was Muti's English language debut. And what a debut it was. Why don't they team up and overthrow him?
2: Team up? What does that mean?
1: Maybe I'll show you
2: sometime. Wonderful. You can do that when I take you to Cythera. Where? It's my secret pleasure moon. I have a little palace there built just for two.
1: Oh, wait a minute, Aura. Oh flash, I saved your life. And then we also have, as I mentioned, Mariangela Milato, who plays the sadistic General Colour. She was very well known in Italy at this point uh, as a collaborator with director Lina Wertmuller in films like The Seduction of Mimi, Love and Anarchy, and Swept Away. She was a welcome presence in the film for Italian audiences. And uh, General Colour is indeed fierce and terrifying. And then just a few more Names to mention in
0: the in the key cast: Peter Wingard as Clitus, We never actually see him behind his gold mask, and yes, it's very Darth Vader, isn't it? Uh, but his velvety villain voice is very reminiscent. I would say of George Sanders' purr, and uh, Clitus is very effective as Ming's main lieutenant villain, uh, overseeing the efforts against Flash and. Keeping the the vassal states in line on Mongo, and then salted away in small parts are some interesting names. First up, Richard O'Brien as Fico on Arborea, and yes, it's that Richard O'Brien, riff raff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. So always fun to see him turn up in another film, and also in the Arborean scenes, uh, playing the Arborean priest and overseeing the. Temple wood monster test of, of bravery scenes. That's John Osborne. Yes, playwright John Osborne, the author of Look Back in Anger and The Entertainer. And he and Hodges went back quite a ways. Uh, Hodges had cast him. Uh, he hadn't really done much acting before this, but he cast him very effectively as a gangster and get Carter and uh, brought him along to this project. Also, look for a young Robbie Coltrane and a bit part early on. And then among the little person roles, look for Kenny Baker. Yep, that's that Kenny Baker, R2-D2. And also Deep Roy. Roy, among other roles, played the Oompa Loompas in Tim Burton's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And his character here is Princess Aura's pet named Fellini. Now, I'm sure that name is purely coincidental in this case. It has nothing to do with De Laurentiis' uh, having failed to secure his first choice of director on this film.
1: No, I'm sure it has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Well, another aspect of the film that makes it so fantastic, quite literally, is the incredible production design and costume design, which were both overseen by two-time Oscar-winning Italian costume and production designer Danilo Donati. Um, Danilo Donati had worked frequently with... Yes, Federico Fellini, again, and Pier Paolo Pasolini, among others. He won Oscars for his costume design on Franco Zeffirelli's 1968 Romeo and Juliet and on Fellini's Casanova from 1977. He did both production design and costume design on a number of films, including Fellini's Roma and Amicord, And less notable, maybe, but interesting, I thought, Swedish director... Jan Troell's Hurricane from 1977, which was produced by Dino de Laurentiis, written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., the screenwriter on Flash Gordon, and starred Max von Sydow, alongside Mia Farrow, by the way. After Flash Gordon, uh, Donati did costume and production design for Richard Fleischer's Red Sonia* from 1985, which we've also mentioned on this podcast before because um, Ennio Morricone did the soundtrack. And also, this surprised me, I didn't know this, the Oscar winning Life is Beautiful from 1997 by Roberto Benigni. So a wide ranging career, but always one that embraced the visually extravagant and the exotic and relied on lots of home-crafted improvisation, all of which is on full display in Flash Gordon. And going back to the idea that everyone working on this film was kind of just doing their own thing and something that Bennett also said earlier, Donati was apparently really doing his own thing in this film. Uh, The film was shot largely on sound stages uh, in, in the UK and Donati was basically just given free reign to go wild. He didn't follow, as Ben mentioned, any of the directions given in the script. He just went off and did whatever he wanted to do, even if it was completely impractical for the production. Ming's costumes, for example, basically made it impossible for Sido to sit down between takes. Uh, The tree foliage in Arborea was so dense that it was impossible to really put a camera anywhere useful without chopping through it like it was an actual forest. And, you know, I think the result was great. And in my opinion, fine. Fellini's Casanova is great and everything. But why didn't Flash Gordon win an Oscar for costume design and production design? I mean, come on. Pure maximalist expressionist brilliance. And then the amazing look of the film was, of course, also achieved by veteran cinematographer Gilbert Taylor, known for his work on, among other things, Stanley Kubrick's Doctor Strange Love, Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night, Roman Polanski's Repulsion, Alfred Hitchcock's Frenzy, and, get this, George Lucas's Star Wars. So yeah, the people working on this film knew what they were doing. It's not like you have a bunch of amateurs figuring out what they're doing as they're going along. These were creators at the top of their craft, and maybe they weren't all on the same page about the film they were making, but certainly they pulled their talents to make something that pretty much defies description.
2: And we've already heard the iconic theme from the film earlier in the show, entitled simply Flash. But we have to get into the amazing soundtrack by Queen. Dive a little bit deeper into that. Uh, The soundtrack serves as Queen's ninth studio album, with only two tracks containing vocals, which of course was a departure from the group, uh, with Freddie Mercury not being front and center. But even if Freddie Mercury's vocals aren't as big a presence here as they would normally be, uh, he can still claim to have put a lasting stamp on the film beyond just the two tracks that he sung. And of course, the super iconic Flash song is really enough for him to claim uh, his stamp on it. But with his background in graphic design, uh, he actually designed the classic Flash logo that we see here. Uh, that's not only on the album art for for the soundtrack, but of course on Flash's T-shirt that we see early on in the film and throughout. The initial idea for the soundtrack was actually for Pink Floyd to do it. Uh, But when that fell through, Queen was suggested to producer Dino De Laurentiis. His response was, okay, I'll meet the Queen, clearly having no idea who the band even were. Uh, But thankfully, the band Queen got on board and created what is really a remarkable soundtrack that's operatic, filled with these huge soaring riffs, and incorporating dialogue from the film itself even on the standalone record. The iconic theme is of course instantly recognizable, but plenty of instrumental tracks also complement the on-screen action and match the wacky tone perfectly, working alongside the orchestral score from composer Howard Blake. And Blake actually wrote that score in just 10 days. Although like the film, the score had a mixed reception at the time, It would live on as more than just an anomaly in Queens discography and help the film endure to this day.
0: personal note uh moment here i was nine years old when this film came out and it's it's difficult for me to uh recall the order of things now whether i saw the movie and then acquired a seven inch of the of the queen uh theme song or if i acquired the music first and played it a whole bunch of times long before i had a chance to to see the film i I just don't remember but i do remember playing uh, the Flash Gordon theme song a lot as as a child and listening to the uh, snatches of dialogue that you just mentioned, Ben. And so it must it must have been that way. I was imagining the film before I even got to see the film, but I I loved it a lot. And having not heard it in many years uh, and and then rewatching the film as we uh, prepared to do the podcast this week, uh, it was it was a lot of fun to to hear it again and I just want to say that Brian May's guitar riffs, especially uh in the battle theme, never sounded so good. Uh, hearing them again this week. And oh, by the way, that's Dr. Brian May, astrophysicist coincidence. I think not. Uh, and just one more note on Mike Hodges. He and the band members in Queen uh presumably got along just fine because he directed uh the video for the flash theme for Queen. And then a couple years later, uh for their uh, video for their single body language as well.
1: Well, despite its greatness, uh, Flash Gordon was sadly not a massive box office hit in the US when it first came out. Although both Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert were big fans of the film, but it did do really well in the UK where it was made and in Italy because of the famous Italian cast members. And it did slowly attain this status of cult classic in the U.S. and internationally as it rolled over to become this mainstay on cable TV and home video with new audiences constantly finding out about it that way over the years. And in fact, in the U.K., it became kind of a Christmas movie where it's always part of the holiday TV schedule every year. And I'll also mention this another Brian Blessed story because we need another one because who doesn't? It is, in fact, the Queen's Queen Elizabeth that is favorite Christmas movie of all time, which is something that she told Brian Blessed when he was accepting his his OBE. And she also told him that she watches it with her grandchildren every holiday season. And just the picture of the Queen watching Flash Gordon with Prince William and Prince Harry is I mean, it's just too much. It's almost as good as Flesh Gordon itself. Um, but the Christmas thing, I think, is kind of interesting because actually one of the closest things I can compare this film to in terms of its uh, weirdly incongruous tone and its self-conscious level of, of camp is the British tradition of Christmas pantos, which if you've never seen a panto or a pantomime, is kind of hard to describe, but basically it does have this same weird mix of being intended for young kids to enjoy, but simultaneously leaning very heavily into sexual innuendo and camp appeal that parents can definitely enjoy and go with too. And just one more thing uh, on the wide-reaching legacy of Flash Gordon. Uh, This was actually the film my husband and I watched on our very first date, almost 20 years ago on VHS rented from the Bologna library as one of the only films that wasn't dubbed into Italian that, that they had there. So that's just that alone is a, a tribute to how wide reaching the legacy of Flesh Gordon has been.
0: Well, yeah, Abby, it is uh, a legacy for, for better or for worse, a, a little bit of both. Um, we've we've just uh devoted quite a bit of time talking about the crazy story that the film is and it is uh clearly we all enjoy it uh, warts and all uh definitely in a in a camp with a camp lens applied to it but there's something fascinating about what this film was at the time it was made all this great talent involved people who had done uh notable films before and many who would go on to as well but There's just something really strange about this movie landing in 1980 um, and context for other films done in this comic book, sci-fi vein. Um, To be fair uh, in the context of 1980, there was a lot of cheap schlocky sci-fi films out around that time. And and that would continue on for a while. Uh, You know, films like that before star Wars and films like that after star Wars trying to cash in on the success of that film on the cheap, most notoriously Roger Corman's Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, To be fair, this is before the era of CGI, which would allow for more convincing realizations of all sorts of extraordinary sci-fi and fantasy material. But on the other hand, well, Star Wars couldn't take full advantage of that technology yet, or or a film like Superman uh, from 1978. So there's something about Flash Gordon that just, failed to learn the lessons of Star Wars and Superman before it in terms of what you could achieve with a proper budget and production values. And maybe it's a lesson that Dino De Laurentiis would have to learn again when he adapted Dune a few years later in 1984. But then on the other hand, Flash Gordon does have its touches of creativity and genuine inspiration. Uh, One sequence really stands out for me, the brain drain sequence, where uh, Clytus uh, attempts to to wipe Zarkov's brain and turn him into a, a reprogrammed agent. And this feels like some sort of Kubrickian experimental art film that's been smuggled into this popcorn flick. Credit for this goes to Dennis Postle, a documentary filmmaker and friend of Hodges from way back. But again, mainly what we love about Flash Gordon is its spectacular, campy entertainment value, which stands on its own merits. And it's a film that, yes, can claim a definite influence all its own. Among its unapologetic fans are Edgar Wright, who we've talked about a little bit previously, the director of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, among other any other titles, and Taika Waititi. And if you think back to what he did in his own space opera Thor Ragnarok, does that film rock out during its epic space battle scenes just like Flash Gordon does? You bet your sweet ass it does.
2: So I think by this point in the show it's pretty clear where we stand on Flash Gordon. But for me, it was kind of unclear at first and, and I was pretty hesitant to do this. We, we had it on the schedule for, I think for almost, I would say months, we had it on the schedule um, because because of the release and the anniversary um, to talk about it and do something a little bit different on the podcast, kind of steering away from the bigger prestige type things that we, we've been doing lately in this section. Um, and just from the stills alone, I was getting some strong Power Rangers vibes and I wasn't really sure what to expect here. Um, but I'm really, I'm happy that you know I dove into it. Uh, clearly I'm now a huge fan of Brian Blessed. Um, so there's a lot here and if you made it this far, you're either a Flash Gordon head or you will be soon. Um, so definitely watch the film or rewatch the film. Uh, it's worth your time. It's a very fun diversion. Uh, if you aren't living with people in your home, maybe you could even do a virtual watch party with people. I think this is this is kind of one you want to watch with people if you can. Uh, maybe you know in the future we'll we'll have some kind of in person opportunities to to play it or um, or you know just go over to a friend's house and watch it. But I think that's kind of the way it works best, and you know that's the way that a lot of camp movies work most in fact so a great film flash gordon and i think if you've made it this far you also deserve to hear just a little bit more of that excellent queen soundtrack no cause for alarm
0: All right, so that wraps it up for this week's edition of Silver Streams. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and please join us for the EU Film Showcase this week.
1: Thanks, everyone. Please watch some excellent European arthouse cinema and also Flash Gordon this weekend.
2: Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We hope you come back next week for another episode of Silver Streams.
0: A reminder to our listeners, you can find everything currently available in our virtual screening room on our website at afi.com slash silver, and a portion of the proceeds from screening these titles at home goes to support AFI Silver Theater. When you're on our website, please be sure to sign up for our e-blast in order to keep up with our latest announcements. And if you have any feedback or questions, you can email us at silverinfo at afi.com.
1: You can also get in touch with us or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at AFI Silver Theatre and on Twitter at AFI Silver.
2: And opening music for this episode was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. You can find more of their work at their website, sessions.blue.